Hey, it's Jordan. I am here uh, still in Detroit. Uh, yesterday we covered uh, a meeting with uh, some current and former auto workers uh, about the layoffs that are hitting uh, Detroit. They're hitting uh, Lordstown, Ohio. They're hitting Maryland, Ontario, Canada. Uh, and basically General Motors, a continuation of what we've seen, which is essentially corporations being given billions and billions of dollars, uh, very little strings attached, and then they lay off the workers. So it's a little bit more complicated than that, but I also uh, wanted to bring you a little bit of a different perspective because uh, there are also problems with the labor unions, and the labor unions kind of between corruption and not exactly uh, – fighting for the actual workers. So I wanted to bring a, a, a socialist perspective to the equation. Uh, I'm here with Jerry White. You are the uh, labor editor for the World Socialist website. Uh, Larry Porter, who is the assistant national secretary of the Socialist Equality Party and used to work for Chrysler. So you know these wars uh, way better than I. <laughs> so thanks for doing it. Uh, first wanted to ask you guys, I, I missed it, but you did a protest on Saturday. Um, against exactly what we're talking about. Uh, can you kind of talk about what we're seeing in uh, De De Detroit, Warren, where a plant is closing specifically? Uh, we're not seeing mass like strikes or anything like that. It seems like workers are deathly afraid to, to speak out or, or, you know, organize right now. Uh, beyond your protest, are we, are we seeing any real action here against these layoffs? Well, the, uh, the demonstration that we held on, on Saturday, February 9th, was... Uh, gave a expression to a very deep sentiment of, of anger and opposition to the plant closings. Workers are totally outraged over this, uh, you know, the shutdown of three major assembly plants and, uh, and two transmission plants is going to have a devastating impact on areas already hit by years of, of uh, deindustrialization. There is enormous opposition, uh, which is why uh, we organized the demonstration because w workers also know the UAW, the United Auto Workers, will, will do nothing to oppose this. For 40 years, the UAW has told workers that if they give up wage and benefit concessions, that this would save your jobs. They've told us for years that the enemy is not the corporations, let alone capitalism, but the workers of Japan or the workers of Mexico. Uh, so they are also heavily invested. The union itself is a corporation. Uh, even though they lost uh, 600,000 union members in the big three since 1979, the assets of the UAW has actually gone up over a billion dollars. They control 100 million shares of General Motors stock itself. So we held this demonstration, and it was called by the, um, the steering committee of the Coalition of Rank-and-File Committees and the World Socialist website Auto Worker Newsletter in order to fight for three things. One the building of rank-and-file committees completely independent of the UAW and Unifor in Canada to mobilize workers against the plant closings, against demands for concessions. Two, that this is not just an American or even just an American and Canadian issue. There's a global restructuring of the auto industry. Workers are losing their jobs in Europe, in South America, in Asia. And our demonstration rejected the anti-Mexican campaign of the UAW and Unifor and called for the greatest unity of workers throughout North America. And as you'll see on our website, there's a statement from the striking workers in Matamoros who have carried out a rebellion against their unions and have 
they issued a statement calling for the unity of, North, of all workers, the U.S. and Canadian. And finally, we say that rank-and-file committees must not accept what the corporations say is affordable or profitable. They have to begin with the needs of workers. GM is closing this plant, and over the last, of oh, these five plants, and over the last four years, while they've slashed wages and cut jobs, they've funneled almost $14 billion into stock buybacks that only benefit the richest investors, including Mr. Warren Buffett, already the third richest man in the world. And their executives who are largely paid in stock. Oh, yeah, like Mary, Mary Barrett herself is a, has the most stocks of any, any individual. And, of course, she got on the, a call with Wall Street investors just last week when they announced that they had made $11.8 billion in profits. And she said, I am committed to you, our owners, for long-term and short-term profit-making. And the money that they've given to stock buybacks is is almost three times the money that they're going to, quote, save from closing these factories. So we believe that the rights of workers, including the right to a secure and good-paying job, must take precedence over the private profits of the, of the super-rich, and that workers have to begin to mobilize on that basis. I'd like to ask you a question because uh, both some folks I talked to last night at the uh, – uh, local meeting in response to this, as well as some workers I talked to today. They're from Fiat, uh, Fiat Chrysler. But uh, on the workers' part, the thought was, um, good-natured on their part, well, we gave back all, I mean, pretty much we gave back the farm after the bailout, concessions, whether it be pensions, wages, uh, the influx of temporary workers. So they thought with General Motors making, uh, I think, almost record profits the last few years, uh, they'd start to get some of those uh, concessions back. So I'm not calling them naive, but what I am saying is the thought on the worker is, wait a minute, you have record profits right now, uh, and you're basically you know, hammering us over the head. Uh, you used to work at Chrysler. It seems to me that really what General Motors has been doing is what a lot of corporations have been doing, hammering you over the head so you're desperate, uh, like we're going to lay off 15,000 people, so that you'll take anything at the time of contract negotiations. Well, there's no question that the uh, policies of Barra and General Motors is to preempt and, in fact, threaten the workers that if there's any action taken at all, they're going to lose their jobs. And you use the jobs as a hammer against the workers. Um, the announcement of five plants that were going to be closed is just the beginning, as a matter of fact. Um, but that's being used, again, to, uh, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a tool to threaten the workers um, and um, also to show that they're prepared to do anything necessary in order to make the profits, even when the economy is in a, in a recession. Um, when they negotiated the contract back in 2009, they did it with the agreement of Obama to institute the tier system as an institution within the company. Can you explain the tier system? The tier system, at first it had a two-tier system, whereby the new hires came in at half the wages. That was part of the agreement for the bailout, both for General Motors as well as for Chrysler. Since then, they've instituted now at least four or five different tiers, whereby workers are now part-time workers. Workers are coming in um, from uh, temporary agencies, um, making as little as a, a little bit more than minimum wage. Um, 
And all of the workers are doing the same work, including the older workers. On that basis, the company's making enormous profits. And um, in fact, that's one of the arguments they're, they're making about bringing the jobs back to the U.S. is that they're able to make a higher level of profit in the U.S. than they can in other countries. So this is something that the UAW agreed to. At the same time, when they made that agreement in 2009, as Jerry was raising, they made an agreement to take over the um, health care of the workers, the VIBA, they call it the VIBA, um, and um, on that basis get the stock from the company. This was, uh, the, sorry. this was the UAW who took over the health care. It's astonishing what we're talking about here. As Jerry said, $100 million. But in Chrysler, they have 55% ownership of the stock of Chrysler. It's astonishing. I mean, they're in partnership with the company. And uh, when you have that kind of stock, I mean, many workers say it's a conflict of interest. But, I mean, you're in partnership now. Um, in fact, you benefit from the cuts and the attacks being carried out against the working class. In General Motors, is 18%. And in Ford, it's 11%. The um, institutional policy now is UAW slash GM, UAW slash Ford, UAW slash Chrysler. Um, so that, you know, for the workers, they are dealing with both the union and the company when they're fighting to defend their jobs or any benefit today. That's the, so workers will realize that, but the main problem they face is what do you do about it? How do you change it? And this is where the opposition is beginning to really begin to, to develop. In 2015, in Chrysler workers, for the first time in 30 years, they voted down the last contract. That's just the beginning. And um, the support we got for the demonstration expressed that. There's just widespread anger and opposition to the policies being carried out, both by the company as well as by the union. And it also seems that uh, General Motors' strategy, and according to you, UAW's strategy, if they're working in tandem, is just divide and conquer. So hire as many temps as you can. Uh, those temporary workers are actually taking away from the full-time workers overtime, uh, oh, those that, kinds of things. Yeah, what's actually done, this was accelerated in the 2015 contract. Uh, they, there used to be a case where the TPTs, the part-time temporary workers, would only be hired on come in on Fridays and Mondays to make up for absenteeism. But the UAW agreed to allow TPTs to come in any time that they want. These are neither part-time or temporary workers. TPTs can work often for 40 hours a week, and they can be a TPT for years, paying UAW dues and having absolutely no contract rights whatsoever. They are disposable workers. They have no transfer rights. They don't get the profit-sharing check. They're, they're super exploited. And there's a, a sympathy among the older workers because they, they know that these workers are being terribly exploited. Some, in some cases, it's their own sons and daughters. Mm -hmm. So yes, the UAW has done everything that it can. It, you, you know, when you think of the word union, right, it conjures up this idea that workers recall of a past struggles, the Flint sit-down strikes, the unity of workers, black, white, immigrant, native-born, all workers, the right to equal pay for equal work. Well, that doesn't describe what this organization is. It does everything it can to divide workers. Young against old, first tier against second tier, against TPT, American workers against workers in other countries. So, and as they've agreed to these contracts, of course in 2015, 
you know, we we fought, and the World Socialist website, Auto Worker Newsletter, was the center of opposition to the contract. And the UAW was denouncing us as outside agitators. They even coined the term at the time "fake news." When it sounds like sounds like Bill, sounds like Bill O'Reilly back in the day. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but then, but who? But but who? And then it turned out that in fact the UAW officials were paid millions of dollars in bribes by Fiat Chrysler, funneled through the UAW Chrysler Training Center here in Detroit. You know, the, uh, General Hollyfield and other Norwood Jewel, all these other people, they were, went off to Palm Springs on golf circuits. Their wives got designer shoes made in Italy worth $10,000. I mean, these people, these people are on the other side. And, and many workers know that. That's why the issue of the independent organization of workers. I mean, look. When the Flint sit-down strike happened in 30, 36, 37, the workers actually rebelled against the old American Federation of Labor Unions, which were also pro-company and so on. They had to build something new, the CIO at the time. And workers today are going to have to build something new. It's an, it's an interesting historical fact. When the sit-down strike took place in, in Flint, the first judge carried out, tried to get an injunction to force the workers out of the factory, but it was exposed that the judge had 36,000 shares of GM stock. Well, the UAW has 100 million shares of General Motors stock, but it won't recuse itself, you know, because it's in the business of policing the workers uh, as a cheap labor contractor, and they, and they control assets worth over a billion dollars. So, again, that's why we are fighting for the development of rank-and-file committees based on the democratically elected by workers to fight for industrial democracy, to fight for workers' control over line speed, over safety. We insist that workers should have the right to observe all negotiations. There should be no negotiations behind the backs of workers. In fact, they should be live-streamed. Workers should advance their own demands in this upcoming contract, including a 40% wage increase. They've had frozen wages for years. The abolishing of all tiers among workers, the conversion of all temporary workers into full-time workers, and, and that they begin a fight. But again, this has got to be bound up. It's not just auto workers. I mean, if you take Amazon workers or UPS workers or teachers are on strike right now in Denver. They were on strike in Los Angeles, you know, la last month. In every case, and of course West Virginia, Oklahoma, and Arizona last year, in every case that workers strive to assert their interests, they run directly up against these trade union organizations which are tied to the corporations and above all to the Democratic Party. So we, we believe that a movement is coming. In fact, the logic of the opposition is towards a general strike. There is immense anger. I mean, we live in a, a country where three billionaires control more wealth than the bottom 160 million people, you know? And you've got Democrats and Republicans, you know, at each other's throats, but they all agree with defending the rich. They all agree with wars to defend the rich, you know? But what they're, they're debating one another over, you know, is, you know, is it best to go to war against China first or to go to war against Russia first? Or Venezuela. Or Venezuela first, right. Well, I think they all agree on that one. <laughs> but, of course, the working class has no interest in, 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 in oppressing any worker anywhere in the world. And we have, a, we have a, a stake in making sure there isn't a third world war. 
So wait, you're telling me that I've been lied to and it's not Russian trolls online that are attacking our democracy? No, I think every, t every time there's social opposition in America, including the auto workers, it's got to be the Putin and the Russians that are behind it, of course. I want to uh, push back a little bit uh, just to play devil's advocate because if you speak with some UAW committee men or this and that, uh, they say to folks like you, you know, it's a lot more complicated. Uh, you know, there's a lot of layers and the UAW has won certain concessions for transfer rights and things like that. Uh, I know what I know. I know what I don't know. So I ask you, uh, is it is is there some good that the UAW is doing or in general, have they been, excuse my French, uh, collaborating and bending over for, for GM? And it's not just GM, uh, many other companies, too. It's the latter. <laughs> There's no question that they're giving up every right. We were just covering a case of a terrible tragedy involving a young man at the Woodhaven stamping plant, um, Jacoby Hennings. He was 20, 20 years old. Uh, he was a temporary worker. And um, in fact, he was working two different temporary jobs, one at Chrysler and one at uh, Ford in order to make ends meet. He had a grievance about the conditions inside the plant and went in to speak to the union officials. He was in their offices for an hour. And supposedly, in the course of that, they claim he committed suicide. And, um, but it was a very tense op condition. He had, was well known to be an outspoken spokesperson against the conditions inside of this plant. We don't believe that what the union has said has been true at all. In fact, the family has not been able to get the full story about what happened inside that plant. So you want to ask about the conditions inside the plant facing workers every day. They're told to go along with what you are doing because there's a lot of other people out there who will come in and do the same job. And um, the, the conditions have deteriorated enormously inside the plants. Uh, on the basic grievance levels, on every level. And uh, so the argument that, well, they're working behind the scenes and they're trying to do this and that and the other, uh, many workers would give a very artful phrase, you know, to explain what they really think about the union and its policies. What, what phrase is that? Uh, we, we, we're, <laughs> we're, I mean, it's the internet. You can say what you want. Uh, By the way, in terms of transfer rights, I mean, this is nonsense. They're, they're telling workers to uproot their families from Detroit. Some of them have to move as far away as Arlington, Texas, or, t or Tennessee, or Kentucky to retain a job. How are you supposed to do that when you have family and uproot? And in many cases, this is not the first time workers were uprooted. There's something called the GM gypsies because it's happened to people so many times. You can uproot your family and then your, fa your factory can be the next to close. So uh, in terms of any rights that are left, uh, it's not because of the UAW. It's because of what was fought for by an earlier generation, including the, the Flint sit-down strike. Yesterday was the 82nd anniversary of the end of the 44-day sit-down strike. When workers seized the property of the largest corporation in the planet, in a city where there were ordinances passed that if more than two workers were on a corner, they could be arrested for, quote, bunching, where General Motors had industrial spies and, and thugs to beat workers up, and it was underground work to organize the sit-down strike. And that was a heroic struggle. 
The union, the UAW long ago spit upon those traditions. By the way, those were the traditions that were fought for by the socialists who built the UAW. In the 1940s and early 50s, Walter Ruther carried out a vicious purge of the UAW, tied it to the Democratic Party, uh, and, and uh, prevented any, you know, and tried to root out of the UAW. It's those traditions that, once, that were behind its building. You know, and today, as Larry said, the UAW doesn't even hide that it's a partner with management. It boasts about it. Everything is UAW Ford, UAW GM, and so on. A, an earlier generation would roll over in its grave. You know. And something that the more I uh, talk to people, it, it seems to me that General Motors, these other automakers' calculation is China, double down. Because, you know, the Chinese government gives uh, people subsidies for electric cars, something we should be doing a lot more of, uh, so that they, they see more profit in China. It seems like they've been doubling down on trying to sell in well, China and, and other countries. Well, China right now is actually a larger car market than, than the United States is, so all of the automakers, whether it was GM, Ford, uh, or Renault and others, flooded in. But, of course, since the China is connected up to the world economy, which is now once again entering into a slowdown. There's also the impact of the tariffs. There's an economic slowdown in, in, in China as well. And auto workers are losing their jobs in China as well. Mm -hmm. So this is, you know, they have a global strategy. They shift production anywhere in the world to try to find the cheapest sources of labor. And the unions, which are rooted in nationalism, had no progressive answer to the development of globalization in the, in the late 70s and early 80s. What was their answer? Telling workers their enemies were the Japanese and working with the employers to cut labor costs to try to attract finance capital here. And the German unions do the same thing. The British unions do the same thing. So this is why the whole perspective of nationalism of the trade unions is completely reactionary and why an international and global strategy of the working class is needed. And when you talk about the Flint sit-down strikes, uh, 30, 1937, uh, the minimal research I've done, it's, you know, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, he didn't send in the National Guard to stop it. He let things play out. Uh, the governor of Michigan at the time, uh, the governor of Michigan at the time, uh, it seems, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, I mean, wasn't sending in the, you know, wasn't sending in uh, wasn't trying to shut it down immediately. In today's day and age, with a general strike, I mean, we live in a police state. I mean, I was at Standing Rock. You have police basically, you know, battering people with, with uh, rubber bullets and tear gas and all this in protection of a private oil company. So when you talk about a general strike, uh, do you think in this kind of uh, capitalist corporate system uh, that workers could freely strike? Well... They did attack the workers in Flint. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, it was a famous case where they came in with gas, um, throwing in gas bombs and so forth and so on. They began breaking out windows in order to get the air out so that people wouldn't be suffocating within, within the plant. It was not true. The, and um, when the National Guard did come, there was the danger that they were, they were turned against the workers. There's no question about it. Um, the governor at that time was afraid of an explosive development taking place within the Detroit and Flint area. If you recall, in 1934, there were three major general strikes in America. Toledo, Autolite strike, and a lot of workers from Toledo came up to Flint to assist the workers there. 
the Minneapolis general strike, which was led actually by the Trotskyists and uh, you know, the, uh, the over-the-road drivers, and in San Francisco. So we're talking about an explosive period of struggles on the part of the working class that if they had called in a National Guard to come and attack those workers, there's no question about it that uh, this country would have gone up. So it wasn't a measure to, you know, because they were, they were uh, it was in fact because they were afraid of an explosion taking place that they, they backtracked uh, on, on those issues. Without the independent movement of the working class, nothing would have happened uh, in terms of the struggle taking place um, among the workers in the CIO. I, just, I do want to go back to what's happening today because there are many lessons. And we're talking today really at a higher level than we were in the 1930s. Um, the class struggle has been suppressed for the last 30 years, not just in America. This has been an international phenomenon. And as Jerry was saying, that the, the answer of all the unions internationally has been to uh, make alliances with their corporations and to promote nationalism. Uh, this may sound a little bit of field, but I, I think this has an, an, is appropriate. Following the, the collapse of the Soviet Union, which was considered to be socialist, which, would, which it never was, it was, in fact, the socialist revolution, but you had a bureaucracy which came to power, usurped uh, power from the workers, and uh, you had the development of Stalinism. But when it collapsed, it was said that, um, you know, this is somehow going to lead to more peace, it was going to be meet, you know, and so forth and so on throughout the world. Just the opposite, you've had more wars than you've had in any other period in history since 1990, since 1992. But, but, but it, what it also signaled and the reason why the, why the uh, Soviet Union collapsed was because of the nationalism of its own policies within the period of globalization. We concluded from that uh, development that it was really the death knell of nationalism on a world scale, of all the organizations based on the working class, and especially the, the trade unions, and they could not provide an orientation for the working class. The, um, and that the only solution would be for the working class to begin to unite on a global scale, and that in fact the struggles that we'll be developing would be global struggles. And while they would take a national form, they would inevitably be against many of the same companies, which were international corporations, and uh, involve workers uniting on a global scale. I think we're beginning to see that. I want to, I want to, because, uh, hey, I could admit it, I've probably uh, uh, wrongly stated this before, you know, railing about, oh, you're sending the jobs to Mexico and China, this and that. But something you guys have been saying, and, and uh, socialists, is this is a strategy by General Motors and the UAW to pit, you know, U.S. workers versus Mexican workers versus other countries, and it's actually you're looking at the wrong thing. Can you kind of talk about uh, why we need solidarity with yeah. Mexican workers? I mean, look, there's no such thing as a Mexican car, an American car, or a, or a German car. The cars have 30,000 parts in it produced by workers all over the globe, not to mention those who, who mined and, re and, and uh, you know, develop those re the raw materials. So corporations, uh, transnational corporations, and that was a phenomenon that developed in the in the 80s and the 90s. It used to be where there were just multinational companies. So if it was a GM factory in Brazil, it produced for the Brazilian market. Transnational production meant in the production of a single commodity, 
there was wor the work was distributed in many, many, many countries. So that gave the capitalists the ability to constantly distribute production, shift production wherever they can get the highest rate of profit. So when the trade unions were confronted with that, you know, they are rooted in the national market, in the la national labor pool. So their response to that was, don't shift production to another country. We'll voluntarily lower labor costs in our country in order to save our capitalists and make our capitalists more competitive. Meanwhile, the unions like the UAW carried out a vicious, racist, anti-Japanese campaign in the 1980s that led to the tragic death of a Chinese-American by the name of Vincent Chin in 1982, who was beaten to death by a Chrysler foreman and his unemployed stepson. And so the issue of the international unity of the working class isn't some kind of, you know, uh, utopia or, so, or something that you only save for, for, for holiday speechifying. It's a strategic question. You can't fight global corporations, globally organized corporations, on a national scale. It's like saying we're going to fight General Motors only in Michigan, but they have operations in Ohio, Illinois, and so on, and they move it. So... The, the issue of the practical unity of the working class, the establishment of links of communication, coordination, is a life and death matter for workers. And that's why it, I, I encourage your, your listeners to, to watch this video of the striking Matamoros workers. They're, they work for a company called Fisher, which produce, is actually based in Michigan, mm -hmm. you know, but of course it pays 75 cents an hour to these workers there. They rebelled against their unions. In fact, the, one of the first things the Matamoros workers did was they marched to the U.S. border and they said, gringos, wake up. Americans, wake up. This is was, that, was that the caravan that Trump was talking about? <laughs> Well, actually, that caravan was that one of their slogans are "We are international workers," and and all the vicious uh, anti-immigrant baiting, which of course the Democrats fully support. I mean, they've just cut a deal with with uh, Trump on the issue of the wall and so forth. They all want to divide the working class. They all want to promote nationalism. The the lie that because everybody is the same. In, you know, all Americans, that somehow we all have the same class interests. Excuse me, an American worker has a hell of a lot more in common with a Mexican worker than he does with Mary Barra or, or an American multi, or, or, you know, Bill Gates or Warren Buffett or any of these people. And it goes, and this is a class struggle. It isn't an issue of gender. It isn't an issue of race. You want to see, you know, you got women running. Mary Barra runs General Motors. Is that a great advance for womenhood? No. She's a capitalist. She's ruthlessly attacking the jobs of men and women, throwing them into poverty. So the issue is the, the working class has to be united uh, and it has to be done on an international scale. I just want to read a, by the way, I haven't been being rude. I, I want to bring in some comments from the viewers. Uh, one viewer said, working class internationalism, one global working class united and coordinated, a global workers' army to wage the class war. So a lot are digging what you're saying. Well, this is a, I agree with the sentiments um, by, the, by your readers here. And I'm glad that they're making such statements, as a matter of fact, because they are our greatest ally. They're not our enemies. In fact, the UAW and Unifor right now have launched a proposal for boycotting all Mexican cars. And um, this is the first time the UAW and Unifor has gotten together on anything. Was, I mean, they split some 30-some uh, years ago. 
over nationalism and um, over off who can offer the companies the highest, the, the, low, the, the most concessions and keep the jobs against each audience, other. I just want the audience to know. Uh, Unifor is the Canadian, I'm sorry. which used to be it used to be called the Canadian Auto Workers Union, which was part of the UAW until 1986, and they split, like Larry said, along national lines. No, I mean the issue of uniting with the Mexican workers isn't because we believe it's just a you know we have to be united with our brothers and sisters. It's, as Jerry was saying, it is a strategic question. If the working class is to win and defend any of its jobs today, it has to unite with its international brothers and sisters. Because the companies today are, are, can easily move production in any other, any other location, and they'll try to use workers against each other. It's similar to what happened in the 1930s by, uh, by Henry Ford, when he brought in black workers from the South into the plants in Rouge and so forth. They tried to use the black workers against the white workers to keep the workers from uniting and having a union. And it was the socialists who were able to fight and unite the working class to understand black and white workers that this is a unified struggle. We have to stand together in opposition in order for us to have that right. And it was the hardest company to, to, um, to unionize. Ford was only unionized in, 19, in 1940, you know, three years after the uh, General Motors location, because of that strategy of, of the divide and conquer. So, we say to the workers now, let me look, many of the plants that are out on strike in Mexico are actually affecting plants right here in Detroit and throughout the country. It's the same companies. And as a matter of fact, many international companies are involved in, 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 in Mexico. So this, this issue of the unification of the working class is extremely important and strategic. Without that, we cannot win, in fact, and defend the rights uh, for, for any section of the working class. Well, I'll also touch on, I don't know what your thoughts are, of uh, the Yellow Vest movement in France but seems relatively organized, uh, and they got concessions from Macron, I don't know how good they were, pretty quickly. Uh, but they were willing to actually shut things down and be a little bit more disruptive. Uh, what are your thoughts on what's going on there in relation to the things we're talking about? Well, the most significant reason why that struggle has had any sustaining power is, is that it's been independent of the unions. You know, the, the CGT and the other unions have tried to sort of co-opt it and, and the workers have resisted it. I mean, the unions are equally as discredited in France as they are in the United States. Now, Macron didn't make any, any, any real concessions to the workers. In fact, he's been sending his riot police week after week after these, these workers. Uh, but increasingly we're seeing rebellions against these old uh, pro-capitalist and nationalist organizations and that's the tendency which is emerging what has to be done however is that there has to be a conscious leadership developed to link together workers first of all throughout France and throughout all of Europe um, in fact the yellow vest movement there's going to be a, a, a general strike in Belgium in, 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 in several days in the Netherlands there's strike wave growing in, in South Africa, in Zimbabwe, in Kenya. There's a strike, strike, there was just a general strike, one of the largest, 200 million workers in India, you know? The, there were many workers who sent in their greetings to our demonstration, not only from Mexico, but also the Maruti Suzuki workers in India, 13 of whom were framed up and sentenced to life in prison because they rebelled against their, the pro-company union in the Japanese-owned company. We got tea plantation workers in Sri Lanka. 
German workers, Turkish workers, increasingly workers are sensing, as Larry indicated, that this is a, a global uh, issue, that the, the use of nationalism is just the oldest trick in the book to divide and conquer workers. And of course, the issue of nationalism isn't as, as, as serious as the declining living standards are. Of course, nationalism is also what's used to tell workers that they should send their sons and daughters to kill workers in other countries over which gang of capitalists is going to control you know, oil and other raw materials and control markets. So the issue of the fight for the international unity of the working is a life and death question because every country, including Macron, whose French imperialism is back at it in Africa, you know, the, 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 the Americans, as you said, Venezuela, what they call their backyard and also the largest oil reserves in the, in the planet. All of these imperialist, imperialism is rearing its ugly head once again. And the only way to oppose the dangers of World War III is the international unity of the working class. I'd like to uh, talk about a topic that I think will uh, rejuvenate all of us here, the Democratic Party. Because... <laughs> Uh, I, I was blasted, you know, during 2016, I actually covered Hillary Clinton pretty critically and aggressively, which, you know, I'm attacked all the time. You elected Trump. And I said, thank you for giving me that power that I'm so great, so powerful. But to me, uh, this, this hysteria over Trump, and he's a dangerous man. I don't want to minimize it. And he's done some terrible things. However, uh, it seems that the Democratic Party is basically running on, you know, Trump is the Antichrist, Trump everything. And put us back in so we could give you a few tax credits and crumbs for the workers. But the Democratic Party uh, has basically been bought off by Wall Street equal to, if not more, than the Republican Party. What are your thoughts on the Democratic Party is trying to basically stifle the things you're, you guys are talking about? Well, the Democratic Party, let's take the, the Obama era. Be careful. He thinks, he thinks Obama's like Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> transferred more wealth to the rich than any other president in American history. Oh, Carried up massive cuts in social programs uh, against the working class. 350,000 teachers, I think, lost their jobs during the period when Obama was in, in, his, in office, despite the fact that Randy Weingarten and the teachers' unions continued to support them and were the first ones to jump in line to support them. Obama, in fact, all the promises he made of, you know, that he was going to create a health care position for the help the working class, change you can believe in, and all the rest, it was because of the lies that were carried out by the Democratic Party that Trump actually won the election and swung people over to supporting such a demagogue as Trump. And, um, I mean, many of the workers, especially white workers, Black and white workers voted for, for Obama twice, twice, and still nothing changed in terms of the policies by the Democratic Party. So, I mean, when we talk about the policies of the Democratic Party, I mean, they, they carried out the most sweeping attacks against the, against, the right, against the rights of the working class than any other time in history. I mean, look, it was under Obama that they've inaugurated the policy of drone attacks and murders, including those of American citizens, and justified it. Uh, you know, Bush's policy before that was they would just, you know, arrest people, and throw them in Guantanamo and, and so forth and so on and, and kill them. Uh, Obama used drones, but they didn't change their policy in terms of war. It's, you know, they in fact expanded them. So 
Hillary Clinton's position, I mean, one thing Trump said was, which is true, he said in the, in the State of the Union that if Clinton had won the election, we'd be at war right now. It's absolutely true, because she was calling for the, the division of, of uh, Syria along the lines that they did in, in Vietnam, where they create demilitarized zones and so forth and so on, divide up the country, and on that basis, anyone who crossed the line would immediately be in violation of their laws, and they there would therefore be justified to go to war. This is a complete war policy on the part of the Democratic Party. And to this day, they support the nationalism of the Trump policy. They're not indifferent. They're, the main fight difference is over international policy. The Democrats are launching the, they would like to go to war against Russia in particular first, whereas Trump has chosen China as being his main competitor. And uh, that, uh, you know, in terms of the differences in, 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 and so forth. But, and they're, they're comp the Democratic Party has the closest relationships to the military than any other, uh, than the Republican Party, as well as to Wall Street. So how is that a party that's going to defend the interests of the working class? And what has it actually shown that it's prepared to do over the last 10 years? Well, I, I will just point out, and it is, <laughs> you're not going to hear from me, let me be fair to Hillary Clinton, because I agree with you. That, that was one of the reasons I said I personally can't vote for her. I didn't vote for Trump either. But, I mean, Trump has only doubled down on this drone program. Uh, we're still, you know, in, we're still helping Saudi Arabia and Yemen. We're still bombing, eight, you know, seven or eight countries. So Trump's pretty down with the war, too. It's just he hasn't started a, yeah, a, a new ground war. Yeah, and, and, of course, lifting the ban on nuclear, expansion of nuclear weapons and so forth. I mean, look, Trump is a, you know, he, he's, a, he's a billionaire. Of course, he was a former Democrat as well. Good friend of the Clintons, by the way. Like to change parties. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, look, he has, he, has a, he has a strategy. Him and Bannon and others and Miller, they, uh, they would like to build a fascistic movement. They, they tell workers that the cause of, uh, of their social dislocation and their social concerns is because of Mexicans robbing the wealth and, and the United States must be great again. And, and, but, and, and, and uh, of course, the vicious attacks on, on immigrant workers, massive tax cuts to the rich, uh, more and more sort of authoritarian measures. But one thing must be said about the Democratic Party. What other party in the world could be so rotten and so pro-big business, so militarist, that Trump could palm himself off as a representative of working people and a peacemaker. I mean, only the Democrats could do that. I always say, because I, 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 I still need therapy, but I, was, I covered about 30 to 40 Trump rallies, a lot of them in Michigan, Wisconsin, yeah, yeah, yeah. Pennsylvania. I mean, he had them at NAFTA. As soon as he was ranting about NAFTA, they were buying it hook. I don't, I don't blame them based on what's happened in the Midwest. So uh, it seems that Trump understood the anger where the Democratic Party is kind of, you know, it's kind of the Democratic Party with uh, black people. They, they say, well, what, a, what else are you going to do? You're going to go to the Republican Party? Well, the Democratic Party is utilizing identity politics now. And they are, in fact, turning in that direction uh, even more so uh, in the last period. I think it's quite striking, for example, the, that they chose Stacey Abrams to be their spokesperson uh, after Trump's State of the Union address. Mm -hmm. And she's promoting, of course, herself, but she's is promoting especially identity politics, and particularly black capitalism, as being somehow it's going to be beneficial to black workers, that you have to have all the different identity groups to come together. And she, in fact, uh, is very conscious that she's opposed to work uniting, uniting uh, the population on the basis of class. 
she opposes the concept of, of working class. In fact, she blames the workers, you know, for the conditions, um, uh, even facing so-called, you know, black workers and so forth and so on. We reject this position. There's an interesting article that she wrote in Foreign Affairs uh, attacking Fukuyama on this question of, uh, of class warfare. Um, the issues facing the working class. closer to Mitt Romney. Sorry? You said it sounds similar to Mitt Romney. Mm. Um, yeah, well. Say, it's, it's saying it's not a class, well, obviously she's yeah. not Mitt Romney, but when Democrats uh, basically say it's not a class issue, it's, you know, we're all in it together and intersectionality and all that stuff. Uh, I, I do think, obviously, the Republican Party is not your friend either, if you're black or a worker. But uh, I, I, you know, it was like I didn't want to publicly say anything because it's like if you say anything these days about Kamala Harris or Stacey Abrams, you're racist, you're sexist. But I heard a lot of, uh, you know, kind of abstract, vague talk in that State of the Union response. You're not hearing Medicare for all. You're not hearing free public college. You're not hearing any of these things. They're not Look, they're not interested in a sweeping redistribution of wealth. You know, what they're interested in is a distribution within the top 10% of society. I mean, they're not, they're not, they're opposed to socialism. They don't want to expropriate the private fortunes of the rich. What they're seeking to do, and this is what's behind the Me Too campaign and the focus on racial politics, is the very bitter conflict within the top 10% of society over the distribution of wealth. There's a lot of grievances in that top 10%, whether they're union bureaucrats or, or university professors or aspiring CEOs and so on. And they weaponize identity politics for this bitter battle. Look what's happening in Virginia right now. They're at each other's, they're at each other's throats. And, of course, Trump knows how to play them very well as well. But, of course, the fact is that class is the fundamental division within society and that uh, the... Look, what was Obama, why was he there? I mean, there was immense hatred of Bush. He started a war based on lies. He was an oil man, Halliburton, Dick Cheney, all of this, right? It was a, and then the crash of 2008 occurred. Now, how are you going to bail out Wall Street, you know, with an oil man running the country? So then, you know, Obama was brought forward and millions of workers voted for him, including millions of white workers who said, well, his, his skin color is black. Maybe he's going to be more sympathetic to oppressed people. Well, what did he do? He bailed out Wall Street. You know, none of the criminals that were responsible for that were ever held accountable. He then went to the auto industry and there, he, he halved the wages of the auto workers got rid of the eight-hour day, handed it over to Wall Street, and as Larry said, the greatest transfer of wealth from the bottom to the top. The stock market more than, more than doubled. The quantitative easing meant free cash for the speculators to reinflate the stock market. And as you correctly said, there was no end to the war. There were more wars, you know, Libya, Syria, and so on. And then the, the national security state, the spying on the population, the NSA, all of this was expanded. And, and then we found out, you know, late in the, that, that, that Google was beginning to censor the World Socialist website. Our website was the most popular, you know, it still is the most popular socialist website, but it was, they, were set, they, they changed the algorithms on their search engines to make it almost impossible to find our, our articles, and we raised that. We have that in common. Yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and then you have, 
in the name of fighting, you know, Russian meddling, you know, you have Schiff and all these other Democrats calling for even more censorship. And why are they worried? Because when the, the teachers went out on strike in West Virginia, they used social media to, to circumvent the unions and the Democratic Party. Workers are turning to, towards this social media, and that terrifies the ruling elites. I mean, why does Trump, for the, I mean, for the first time, an American president gets on and he says, we have a danger of socialism in America. Now, he's not talking about Alexander Ocasio-Cortez and Sanders. Believe me, he knows exactly what they're all about. What he's worried about is a movement of the working class and a radicalization of the population, anti-capitalist sentiments. You know, more than 50% of the younger generation saying they prefer socialism to capitalism. That's what they're worried about. And by the way, in, Macron, in Macron's France, the president of the rich, there was recently an article in Le Monde Diplomatique in which they were surveying um, uh, business executives worried about their heads being put on stakes remembering, you know, the guillotine. I mean, that is France. So the ruling elites are terrified, and that's why the working class has to have an in, its own independent, in fact, revolutionary party. And they ha workers have to get this dead weight of, 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 of pseudo-left middle-class politics. Uh, I want to I ask you about uh, Detroit specifically, because you see GM's press release, uh, you know, oh, we're doing this, we're going to do these layoffs while the economy is, you know, revved, um, you know, so that when, it, when it's a recession, you know, we'll, we'll be agile. Well, what economy are they talking about? What economy is CNN talking about that's booming? Because when I come to Detroit, and I'm not crapping on Detroit, it's not just Detroit, Flint, Stan, uh, you got Cleveland, Milwaukee, parts of Pennsylvania. I mean, some of these, some of these cities and towns look like an episode of The Walking Dead. I mean, it's dark, boarded up storefronts. Like that That's what I want to get to. So can you kind of talk about uh, this cognitive dissonance that, that we're seeing from people in New York, people in D.C., people on the coast who say the economy is great? Yeah, for, for shareholders, for yacht owners, that, whether it's uh, even before these layoffs, it's not great here. Well, that's who makes up the public opinion, though, isn't it? Because, I mean, the, 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 the news media, the uh, both political parties, you know, the... Uh, they, they're doing wonderfully. The stock market continues to rise. Uh, you know, their, 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 their personal fortunes continue to rise. But it's all been predicated on a vast transformation that took place, particularly after the 2008 financial crash. Almost 100% of all the, quote, new jobs created under the eight years of the Obama administration were part-time, contingent, and uh, precarious employment. And that's not only in America, the same thing in the UK. A whole generation has no idea what a steady job is, let alone 30 years career, you know, 30 years and out. Everybody is, uh, is in this gig economy. Um, and workers that should be retired by now are Uber drivers. and Exactly. I mean, teachers. I mean, how many teachers have to work our Uber and Lyft drivers, you know, because they're, uh, you know, the, after the 2008 crash, everything went to Wall Street. It, the, the states were not, not bailed out. The, the, the school districts were not bailed out. And Detroit wasn't bailed out. As a matter of fact, there was a terrible financial crisis. The home foreclosures were, were terrible in 2007. And then the Obama administration, just as they did in the auto industry, exploited the financial crisis to throw Detroit into bankruptcy in 2013. And for the first time, the federal bankruptcy courts 
overrode the state prohibition in cutting the pensions of public employees. That's illegal under state law, but the Obama administration used the federal courts to supersede the state law. And then they handed over much of the city. First, they were actually trying to sell the art treasures of the DIA, believe it or not, you know. But then they turned over most of the land to Dan, Dan Gilbert, to the Illich family. Uh, they've uh, turned the, you know, the, the, the downtown area more and more sort of a playground for the upper middle class. But the, the neighborhoods have been decimated. You know, there's, uh, you know, empty houses, services have been cut. There's no such thing as a real bus service in the, in the city. Food deserts. Yeah, food deserts. And, 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 and this is the same thing. If you look at Dayton, Ohio, which was another GM center, Flint, another GM center, there's been massive deindustrialization. But the more capital was withdrawn from productive processes, the more it went into financialization, which is the, the bulk of where all the profit making. So when they say the, the economy is doing good, they're talking about their portfolios, not the interests of the working class. You understand that in the 1950s, <clears throat> Detroit had probably one of the highest living standards of workers in the country. Mm -hmm. uh, you certainly had one of the highest number of single home owners in this country. Um, and then in the, up until the 1970s, you would go to the, many Detroit neighborhoods and they were absolutely pristine. Enormous, uh, you know, pride in their neighborhoods. Workers took care of the homes and um, because they had won a decent living standard. It was not unusual to have, for workers to have a house up north, to have uh, a boat. And they certainly were able to put their kids into college and have a decent living standards and uh, retire after 30 years. That all changed in the 1970s. And um, as Jerry was saying, you had a policy of deindustrialization, which not only affected the workers, of course, in Detroit, but every major um, industrial center in the country, Gary, Indiana, Chicago, um, Cleveland, every major city went through this uh, went through this crisis. They began shutting down plants in Detroit. The Detroit area had more than I think close to a hundred auto plants. It was a it was a good reason. It was called the the auto capital of the world. There's now I think two mm -hmm. auto plants now left, and and um, the Chrysler especially dominated you know, the, the area. I think they have something close to 40 plants within the area, and they were all virtually closed in the course of the 1980s. Uh, from 1979, when they had the bailout, uh, up until 1993, Detroit was transformed from a prosperous city to the largest poor city in the country. So um, this was not something which was because of the failure of the people but in fact, it was a policy being carried out by the corporations, big business, uh, to destroy the living standards of the working class, aided by the unions. I mean, significantly, Mark Stepp and others who were, the, you know, he's the vice president of the UAW, worked with the companies to, to decide which plants should be closed down, especially the more militant plants. And there was a long history of, of, of struggles in Detroit, of, uh, especially the rank and file, wildcat strikes, absolute opposition to social conditions. When I worked at Chrysler, uh, it was not unusual. If that plant was too hot and the conditions too bad, people were going out. This was not unusual. And um, there was enormous militants in opposition to, to the conditions. And at that time, then, the unions 
one could say did in a more distorted form, it had to reflect the interests of the workers. It was after that period that it began to change. And with the Chrysler Agreement in 1979, the bailout, uh, the UAW uh, was put onto the board of directors of the company for the first time. The union actually changed its constitution from saying it was antagonistic to the interests of the company to saying it was in working in relationship with the company. Um, and um, they more and more got rid of, especially many of the old conditions, they started pitting one section of workers against another in order to force through concessions. And um, again, you know, they suppressed any strike wave, strike movement whatsoever. So this has been a long period, in fact, of, uh, in, of downsliding, and the conditions in Detroit show it. I mean, if you, if you were saying that the, and it's true, that Detroit looks like a bomb just went through the cities because of the social devastation carried out by plant closures, which has led to the, to the situation. And now they're going to carry out even more plant closures, and, uh, which is going to further erode the living standards and the rights you know, of working people. And that's why people are saying enough is enough. Uh, that's a very common refrain. Now, people are saying enough is enough now. We, you know, we've given concessions. We gave everything they could in terms of even bailing out the company, and still we get thrown out, of, uh, out into the street. So there's nothing that's going to change fundamentally until workers themselves begin to reorganize society on a different basis. My, uh, my last question is, you know, we could talk the talk, but how do people, because people watching, a lot of them are activists, a lot of them are you know, working two to three jobs. A lot of them were Bernie volunteers or, or whatever. Uh, whether, I know you got your qualms with even Bernie, but how do people take what you're talking about into action f to actually form an international coalition of workers? Because I agree, uh, you can't fight international multi-billion dollar corporate conglomerates uh, with a you know, protest on the curb. It, it needs to be a coordinated uh, thing. That's a heavy task, so how do you even begin uh, for, for not just in the auto industry, but workers everywhere. Well, I mean, the, the uh, social anger is, is emerging everywhere. There's a growth of the class, class struggle, and that's an objective process, especially since the 2008 crash, the vast explosion of social inequality. Opposition, anti-capitalist sentiment is worldwide, but the central issue is leadership and, and political program. Uh, and building uh, a party, and we were members of the Socialist Equality Party. Our international movement is known as the International Committee of the Fourth International, and our movement has decades upon decades of struggle fighting to build an international party of the working class against Stalinism and the claims you could build socialism in a single country, which led to the uh, liquidation of the Soviet Union against the nationalism and the trade unions. and. Uh, and against all of those who said there's some easy road, you know, whether it was Castro or Mandela or so forth. And uh, all of these organizations that base themselves on a national perspective have, have collapsed. So we think the most essential question is, is building a leadership, uh, having a program that corresponds to the historical interests of the working class. And uh, we, are, we are the only ones that fight for the development of independent forms of organization, breaking free from the grip of these national and pro-capitalist unions. And uh, we are building an international party because, uh, you know, humanity is at really at a crossroads. I mean, the advances in science and technology make mankind more integrated, more productive than at any point in human history. 
but the division of the world into rival nation states, the subordination of everything to private profit now poses the danger of the destruction of humanity, not to mention the destruction of the environment, which is also part of that. So we believe the issue isn't, as Sanders or Ocasio-Cortez say, reform, you know, that you can reform the system. No, the system is in, in unreformable. You know, it is a question of revolution or fascism and war. So we're building a party, and uh, you know we hope that your listeners will go to our website, the World Socialist website. It's the most widely read uh, uh, socialist publication on the internet, and study our history. And uh, we urge those who seriously to, to to join our movement and to fight for it. We also have a youth movement called the International Youth and Students for Social Equality, uh, and um, so we urge you, you know, once again. Well, you, we should go to wsws.org, World Socialist website, uh, and you can look up uh, about the Socialist Equality Party and, and our youth movement, the International Youth and Students for Social Equality. So basically what I'm hearing is burn the whole thing down and rebuild. No, we're not burning anything down. <laughs> what, we, what we're saying is that we have to transfer the, the means of society over to the, to the working class. It has to be reorganized on the basis of workers' interest, not on the basis of the capitalist system. They're, they're, they're at a deep crisis. This system is going to a, and everywhere you go, I mean, every country right now is in phenomenal crisis right now. They don't have any answers themselves. Europe, the EU is breaking apart. South America, you now have, uh, in Bolsonaro and others, you have literally fascistic governments now coming into power. Um, South Africa, I mean, everywhere you go now, there's an international crisis facing the capitalist system. Uh, Chris, Hedges says we're, Chris Hedges says it's basically late-stage capitalism and the middle class is like a rotting carcass. Well, the, the, what we're raising is that the only social force which is progressive under capitalism today is the working class, not because of the way it thinks, but because of the social position within society it is not tied at all to the profit motive or to the interests of the capitalist system. And because of that reason, it, it's the only force that can play the role of reorganizing society on the basis of democratic and social interests, not on the drive for profit or the exploitation of one man against another man or one woman against another woman for that matter. I mean, you know, and today we ra we're living in a situation today, as Jerry was just raising, where we have enormous dangers as well. It isn't just a matter of a good idea. We face the danger of another war and also fascistic governments now coming to power to smash the interests of the working class. And um, without a new way forward, we face like, another catastrophe. We believe that there is a way forward, and that is by the development of an international movement of the working class in unity, in opposition to the capitalist system itself, which is riding on its, on its carcasses. Uh, they don't have an answer at all to any of the problems in a progressive way to take mankind forward. And uh, the only way it's going to happen is if the working class becomes conscious of these social interests and uh, carries out the necessary transformation um, to take mankind forward, including that of the environment. Which means socialism. I mean, these... As I said, the technology and science makes mankind more productive than at any point. If, if society's wealth, which is 
created collectively by the working class is controlled by the working class, then instead of money being squandered on war and bank bailouts and corporate tax cuts, it's to vastly improve the, the living standards of, of, of all workers around the world. And the great technological advances, if they were controlled democratically. I mean, look, GM is shutting plants which have productive capacity. And they're, and, and, and they're doing it for one purpose solely, to boost the profits of their shareholders. They are vandals. They're destroying society. How much is, 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 it goes into the stock market, to the Pentagon budget? If the, working, if the working class took political power, which is what we're fighting for, organize the socialist transformation of society, real socialism, and that, that means utilizing the great developments of the productive capacity of mankind all over the world in a planned, democratically organized fashion, scientific fashion. Well, as I always say, we're halfway there. We already have a socialist country. It's only for the rich. So who's, we're all paying for it. So.